listening to Snow Life, a National Post podcast featuring true tales of the Canadian winter. I'm Monica Warzeka. This episode is all about the Olympics, past and present, with a special segment brought to you straight from the streets of Pyeongchang. We also managed to get the National Post's resident Scotsman to school us on the origins of curling. No matter how much we boast about our skills, it technically wasn't made in Canada. But first, we take a look back on a sport that never quite took off at the Olympics, but came very close. Joe O'Connor investigates the rise and fall of ski ballet. Here comes George Billiam Speed for his first big maneuver. Oh, a two and a half stay cross. That was fabulous. Would you look at those sleeves on his outfit? He is really one dramatic skier. It had athletic jumps, turns, and flips. Choreography set to music. Competitors with fabulous hair and a cachet for a time. So when you're talking to an old ski ballet champion, be careful how you phrase your questions. Give a definition of what, what ski ballet was. When did it sort of what pop up was? on the scene? Still is. That's Steve Hambling. Steve is in his late 50s, lives in Quebec. He was a big part of ski ballet's early heyday in Canada and is believed to have been the first competitor to ever execute a backflip on skis in competition. So in essence, ski ballet is figure skating on skis. So can you do it on a flat surface like an ice rink? No, because you need some, some downward momentum to be skiing. Um, so, but you do it on a very gentle slope, typically a beginner slope. And the runs would typically last from, yeah, short run would be two minutes. A long run would be four minutes. In essence, that's what it is. It's figure skating on skis. Freestyle skiing was, in its infancy, a reaction to the traditional structure of skiing. You know, where the skier gets on the chairlift, goes up the hill, and skis down it. Freestylers, including the ski ballet converts, used the whole hill, and they viewed it as a canvas, their snowy playground. In ballet skiing, part of the criteria was to have variety, of course, very important, uh, to have uh, spinning tricks as well as acrobatic tricks, so tricks where you left the snow, tricks where you flipped over your skis, you know, you would have to string together uh, also a run that used a lot of the terrain. You didn't go straight down the hill. You weaved back and forth across the hill. You would start off with maybe a lot of guys would start their routines with a flip. Um, then you'd start into some spinning maneuvers on the snow, like a tip-tail turn, a Royal Christie javelin turn. So spinning maneuvers while lifting or moving your skis or crossing your skis. Then you would pick up speed across the fall line and do what we call, uh, similar to figure skating, inside action axles or outside axles, and guys would do singles or doubles or even triples. Here was a sport for the artists, the rebels of the slopes, who broke the downhill mold, catapulting ski ballet into the international spotlight beginning in the 1970s, where it shone and grew and eventually landed at the Olympics as a demonstration sport in 1988 and 1992. It was sport as performance art. Choreography was a big deal. My choreography is another thing that won me the national championship. People looked up to me, if you will, for choreography, because a lot of people weren't good at the choreography for a lot of different reasons, but I'm a musician and I love music. And so at the time, again, we're going way back before CDs, before digital music. So you would make a mixed tape and you would make it on a tape deck with the pause button and you would use records, vinyl records, to get the music onto the tape. And so I figured, wouldn't it be great if the music slowed 
slowed down to a stop. So when I was recording my music, it started off with, um, I think I started off with some country and western song. And I pulled the plug on the turntable while it was still recording to the tape, so it went, you know, it was going, right? And then it would stop, and then a new song would kick in, and I used, I remember the ending of my routine was... Um, a uh, Glenn Miller song, whatever that is. And uh, so I'd kick into that, and I'd come back to life. And So choreography was really key. So what happened? What killed ski ballet? Hamlin points to FIS, the Fédération Internationale de Ski. It was a murder. I just think they didn't think it was skiing. And to that end, I believe I'm correct in stating that the president of the FIS I believe if you go back and look on the internet, you'll find where he was quoted as saying that freestyle is not skiing. And, you know, needless to say, everybody in the freestyle community just flipped out. You know, what are you talking about freestyle is not skiing? It's just skiing. you got a pair of skis on, right? Yeah. Well, then you're skiing. So, so why, in my mind, they just didn't like it. It wasn't ski enough for them, you know, whereas moguls, mogul skiing, yeah, that's skiing. You can't argue that. Aerials, not so much. Slope style is skiing, but fist doesn't seem to think so, even though it's the most popular, uh, most exciting sport in skiing to this day, you know, as exciting as a downhill race, you know. It's hard. It's so weird because there were hundreds and hundreds of athletes doing it on World Cup, and great athletes. You know, it's not, it wasn't as if guys were just doing, you know, basic maneuvers that were like not awe-inspiring. The stuff that guys like Reitberger were doing, you watch one of those runs and you just go, "My goodness, that guy's an amazing athlete." So, so why would you? Why would you stop that? Why would you not let these great athletes practice their craft? It, it just makes no sense. So, alas, we won't be seeing ski ballet at the Olympics. Not now, not ever again. These days, when Hambling surfs the wilds of the internet, what he sees are vestiges of ski ballet. There's a lot of great online groups um, and online presence of young guys that have, I guess, ski, uh, uh, freestyle ski groups that are urban skiers. So they do all their skiing in cities, um, and all their stuff is based on on rails and, and hitting rails and spinning on those rails. That's where you see guys doing um, the old ballet tricks. Another great trick uh, is, and they call this one a, oh, I can't think of what it's called now, but basically a front crossover. So you cross one ski over the other and ski down the hill that way, and they do that on the boxes too. So, yeah, you're probably not going to see these in the slope event at the Olympics, but if you look on more of the urban stuff and the park stuff that kids are doing now, you see some of this stuff coming back, and I'm truly uh, honored that they, they are bringing some of these tricks back. So next time you find yourself on a chairlift, speeding to the top of a mountain, just remember that a slope isn't a hill, but a canvas. And ski ballet isn't really dead. It's just waiting to be reborn. Two and a half thumper. Beautiful landed cross. I've never seen that in competition before. Clips you just heard were of a 1985 ski ballet competition in Breckenridge, Colorado, posted online by Snow.com. Up next, we have John Iveson. He's known for his columns on federal politics, but we asked him to look beyond Ottawa to figure out why curling is such a big deal in Canada. Only in Canada would they make a movie about curling, a sport that mystifies the rest of the world. When it became an Olympic sport, 
Basketball player Charles Barkley said his grandmother would now be able to win a gold medal because they'd allowed dusting into the Olympics. Yet Canadians have an affinity for the granite and the ice, equally as passionate as Americans' fondness for shooting things. In the movie Men with Brooms, Paul Gross's character said his curling stone is not just a rock, it's 42 pounds of polished granite with a bevelled underbelly and a handle a human being can hold. In and of itself it has no practical purpose, but it is a repository of possibility, and when it's handled just right, it exacts a kind of poetry. Canadians have earned the right to wax poetic. Our curling rocks were the best. The World Curling Federation currently ranks Canadian curlers as number one in the world in both men's and women's competitions. Since curling became a competition event in the Olympics, Canada has dominated, winning 10 medals in 2014. As a Scots-Canadian, this is somewhat bittersweet. There's a debate about where curling was first played. Some say paintings by Peter Bruegel place its roots in the Low Countries. But there's no debate that it was the Scots who improved it, turned it into a national pastime and then exported it to other countries, most of whom are now better at it than we are. The game has deep roots in my native land. Records show that a monk called John Slater challenged the abbot of a monastery in Paisley to a game in February 1541. The poet Robert Burns situates one of his works on the ice. In the elegy to his friend Tam Sampson, who was an enthusiastic sportsman, Burns says, When winter muffles up its cloak and binds the mire like a rock, when to the locks the curlers flock with gleesome speed, who will they station at the cock? Tam Sampson's deed. The Scots standardised the rules and the size of the stones, most of which are still cut from blue hone granite from the Isle of Ailsa Craig off Scotland's west coast. They democratised the game, with many clubs ruling that no politics of church or state were to be debated, ensuring political and religious opponents could enjoy the game. But it was the Canadians who perfected it. The first records are of the 78th Fraser Highlanders playing on the ice with melted cannonballs in Quebec City during the 1760s. The first club was formed in Montreal in 1807, which also pioneered the first ladies curling club in the world in 1894. The game spread quickly despite the problems of travelling to away games. A game between Toronto and Hamilton, a distance of 50 miles, took three days there and back. But its success was guaranteed by the climate, the availability of water, the widespread settlement of enthusiastic Scots, and the willingness of those Scots to encourage other nationalities to play. After 1850, the game headed westward. Curling historians suggest it became popular on the prairies because of its emphasis on discipline, persistence, patience and teamwork, which mirrored those aspects of early settler life. One account suggests that when curlers from Scotland visited Winnipeg for a Beyond Spiel in 1903, the legislators sitting had to be cancelled due to lack of quorum because all the members had gone to the game. Scotland's loss has been Canada's gain. Curling has been replaced as a national pastime by licking our wounds. In truth, I'm delighted. It's another tie that binds the nation where I was raised with the one where I raised my children. But it's just the ingratitude that grates. The exiled sons and daughters of Scotland gave this game a gift in the form of the Roaring Game. In return, please can you let us win one gold medal? Erin Valois is in South Korea for the Winter Games. Here's a little taste of what she's experienced in Pyeongchang. The weather, the food, the opening ceremony and something called Real Feel. The Olympics, where the best athletes in the world come together to compete for glory and national pride. 
the Winter Olympics, where the best media outlets in the world come together to complain about the weather. I'm in Pyeongchang for the next month, and it's expected to be one of the coldest Olympics in recent memory. You can probably hear it in my voice, because I've been spending a lot of time outside. It's not the actual temperature that's the problem, it's the wind. It's so windy here. I ran into a Korean journalist who told me I looked cold and asked me where I was from. When I said Canada, he laughed in my face. I mean, I could be a giant baby. I'm from Vancouver. It's really difficult for me to adjust, but there's something different about this kind of winter chill. Pyeongchang is a county near the east coast of Korea. We're about 80 miles from the North Korean border and close to the East Sea. Yes, many people are confusing Pyeongchang with Pyongyang, which is the capital of North Korea. This turned out to be such an issue, they changed the spelling of Pyeongchang to capitalize the C to really emphasize how different the two places are. At Post Media, our style is still to spell it with a lowercase c, but I have a few emails from the Korean Culture and Information Service that say differently. The media village is in a place called Gangnam, which is technically in a different region. It's also apparently far away from the norovirus outbreak, but as a precaution, our rooms were hosed down with bleach and they cut off our access to tap water at the media center. Nothing fills you with confidence like living in close quarters with other people during a mass virus event. There are also intense security lines to get into the venues where you have to take off your jacket and stand in the strong winds. I know, that's enough about how I feel about the weather. It's also causing a lot of problems for the athletes. One ski technician told Reuters that the snow is freezing to the base of their skis, and that makes them unusable. So they're actually going to have to throw out a bunch of their skis. So here in Korea, the English translation for wind chill seems to be real feel. As in, it's supposed to be minus 5 today, but the real feel is negative 20. Or, it's supposed to be minus 10 today, but the real feel is making me feel dead inside. I sat through the opening ceremony last week in negative 15 wind chill. There was no heating at all. In November, when the stadium first opened, seven people were treated for hypothermia. All of our devices failed. No Wi-Fi, no hotspot, a barely functioning iPhone, and a dying laptop. The cold had murdered our battery life. We did have hot pockets, but the hand warmers, not the pastry, and I probably put four in my pants alone. At least the cold didn't keep the North Korean cheer team from doing their thing. North and South Korea put on a joint Taekwondo demonstration before the opening ceremony and the squad went nuts. Some of the athletes didn't say for the entire thing because there was a lot of worry it would impact their performance. Uh, not the Americans though, they had built-in heaters for their jackets, which was really smart. It was another story for that guy from Tonga who was famous for going shirtless during his flag-bearing duties in Rio. He decided to do the same thing in Pyeongchang, which was kind of weird. One of the best things about Korea is their food. We've been eating a lot here. Calgary Herald photographer Leah Hennel and I decided to go to the outdoor Jongsun five-day market. It's about an hour away from the Olympic Sliding Center, and the market is a major tourist attraction in Gangwon province. There's tons of street food, herbs for medicinal purposes, and a huge selection of vegetables and meats. It's called the five-day market because it's only open on days that end in a two or seven. No one spoke English, and we only knew a few words in Korean, but we managed to eat our way around the strip. 
it's been around for 50 years, and there was a lot of really interesting food there. There are no dull moments at the Olympics, especially for journalists. The Alpine venue is a recipe for exposure. There's no cushy chalet viewing. You're on the mountain, often at night when the world is dark and cold. We're lucky to get the opportunity to spend a month covering the Olympics, and it's always a lot of fun. This is one of the best Canadian Olympic teams we've seen in a while, so you should try to spend your nights at home on the couch. There's plenty to watch in prime time, so you don't have to get up at the crack of dawn to catch anything. Especially when the real feel outside is negative 15. That's it for this week. Snow Life is produced by me, Monica Rzeka. Special thanks to Leah Hennel for the recording and editing work in Pyeongchang. Additional music and sound effects were from We Star Music and the Internet Archive. Sound work, show theme, and logo by Bryce Hall, and technical support by John Richardson. If you have any winter stories to share, reach out to us on Twitter or Facebook. You can subscribe to Snow Life on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. Be sure to let us know what you think by leaving us a review. Thanks for listening.